0: Hello everyone, welcome to Arthaniti. I'm Shekhar Tomar. We are extremely happy to have Prachi Mishra with us today. She is currently the chief of Systemic Issues Division at the International Monetary Fund. Prior to joining the IMF, she obtained a PhD from Columbia University. Her research interests are on the intersection of international trade, political economy, banking and finance. Prachi has very wide experience both in the private and public institutions. Prachi was the head of the Strategic Research Unit at the Reserve Bank of India. She also served in the Prime Minister's Economic Advisory Council. She was also in the Economic Advisory Committee for the 15th Finance Commission. In addition to that, Prachi was also the Chief India Economist at the Goldman Sachs. Prachi also obtained the Mahalanobis Memorial Award in 2018 for her outstanding work in economic research. And finally, thank you for being here, Prachi, so much. Welcome to Arthamiti.
1: My, my pleasure, Shekhar.
0: So, Prachi, for us outsiders, IMF, the International Monetary Fund, is like a black box. So maybe you can tell us what IMF does, given your vast experience and the different divisions that you've worked in.
1: So, Shekhar, very broadly speaking, big picture, uh, the International Monetary Fund's goal is to foster international financial stability. And uh, we do three main things. One is we give policy advice to countries, as you can guess. So we are constantly monitoring economic and financial development in countries. And based on that, we give advice to countries. Second, again, as you can guess, we do a lot of financial assistance and, and different kinds of loan programs. And third, um, you know, we do a massive amount of technical assistance to countries around the world. For example, in Delhi also, there's a SARTAC, there's in Africa, in many parts of the world, we have technical uh, assistance uh, centers which cater to building capacity globally in, in, in many different areas in international macroeconomics, banking and finance. Let me come to my division, which is called the systemic issues division. It's part of the research group at the IMF. Here we do three things. One, we do a lot of thinking on sovereign debt. For example, we did a recent World Economic Outlook chapter on globally high levels of public debt and how can countries address that. Second, we do something called um, the integrated policy framework. It's a new analytical approach for dealing with fluctuations in international capital flows. And third, we we deal with a number of issues which are currently systemic. Think about inflation, global supply chains, or we also do a review of um, you know, systemic economies like Argentina.
0: Following on this, so what kind of advisory and technical role that does IMF play? Because I guess for poorer or less developed economies, they might depend just on the IMF for this expertise. But is there a role like across the board that everyone cares about?
1: So Shekhar, I think what uh, the IMF brings is a cross-country global perspective. And particularly on macroeconomic and financial sector issues, which all countries care about. IMF has about 190 member countries. Just to give you a concrete example, for example, um, as I said, in the World Economic Outlook, recent World Economic Outlook, we did a chapter on global public debt. So I think every country wants to know what the other country's situation is looking like and what we can learn from the experiences of other countries. So there's
0: benchmarking and then...
1: Yeah, I don't want to say benchmarking, but at least learning about, for example, uh, the chapter on public debt looks at debt restructuring. So it's very important for um, you know every country who's thinking of, or even not thinking of, but thinking of the problem of high public debt. What you know, w- what kind of conditions m- made it possible for some of the other countries which did restructure their debt, or even you know countries which. Uh, dealt with high public debt uh, by doing fiscal consolidation. Under what conditions can fiscal consolidation work? Under what conditions can fiscal consolidation not work? So what I think the IMF brings is a global and a cross-country perspective, which is, I think, very rare across the organization. And in our experience, countries
0: value a lot. And is there like some increased competition? Because we see a lot of these international organizations are now coming up, which might try to fill in the role that only IMF used to do, let's say, two decades ago?
1: I would say that, you know, different organizations are complementary. And again, what the IMF brings is a more global perspective, you know, cross-cutting across different regions.
0: Okay. So following on this, so I know that you also worked on the FRBM committee report in 2017, and you already talked about sovereign debt. So maybe you can give us a sense of what are we talking about here? What is public debt? Why should we care about it?
1: So let me say that uh, yes, indeed, I was the de facto secretary of the FRBM uh, committee in, back in 2017. I think after a lot of extensive consultations, the committee decided on moving to public debt to GDP as an anchor of fiscal policy. And there were four reasons uh, which were uh, which which formed the basis of the decision of the committee. number one, you know, if you look at standard models, um, public debt is the objective of fiscal policy in terms of standard government solvency constraints. Second, um, I think the committee thought that public debt combined with fiscal policy, fiscal deficit could form a robust framework jointly. Third, I think public debt to GDP in India at that point, and even now, remains high relative to a peer group. And finally, if you look at credit rating agencies, I think they do care about public debt as well. So these, I think these four reasons were the economic arguments for why the committee decided to move to public debt as an anchor of fiscal policy. But I should also point out that there was a very interesting non-economic argument for using public debt. And that was basically that you know, if you think about an ordinary citizen or a pub, you know, common public, you know debt is really ingrained in the psyche. And um, it's, um, if I may say in Hindi, it's it's chukana it's hai. So there was a very powerful non-economic argument. And the idea that this this concept could be communicated to the public for choosing, um, you know, public debt to GDP as an anchor of fiscal policy combined with fiscal deficit as an operational target.
0: So this is more like philosophical and moral fabric of the Indian society also cares about it.
1: And that was indeed one of the non-economic arguments. For choosing uh, public debt. And let me also point out very quickly, uh, Shekhar, that, uh, you know, my current research, I've looked at, you know, another cost of high public debt, which is debt service burden. So if you look at interest payments to revenues for an average emerging market and compare it to India, India is about three times an average emerging market. And what does all this mean is... Uh,
0: so just to get context, like in in case of India, it's like uh, out of one rupee they spend, it's 30 paisa that which is going for servicing the debt. And you're saying for other economies, it would be like similar peer like India, it would be 10 pesa. That's correct, Shikha. Okay. And what are the costs for this? Like, how should I think about this?
1: So there are two costs um, of high uh, debt service payment. One is, you know, when you actually need to do counter-cyclical fiscal policy, there's limited space because uh, your resources are actually allocated uh, to paying, making the interest So by interest counter-cyclical,
0: payments. you mean that when the economy is doing well, you want the government to come in and spend
1: the other way around. so counter cyclical you mean that you know when the when the economy is not doing well yeah, yeah. then when then the you actually yeah, when, well. then, yeah. then you actually want the government to spend when the economy is doing well you want uh, the government to save uh, so you save in good times and you spend in, uh, in bad times, but if you have high interest payments that restricts your capacity to do, do you know fiscal uh, policy when you act to cyclical fiscal policy when you when you actually need it and again a slightly technical point related to this is if you look at variations in debt uh, in india compared to other emerging economies india is less related to cyclical fluctuations than peers and uh, the second uh, cost of high public debt i should highlight is which is you know more natural for a developing economy if you're making high interest payments you have less resources to allocate to areas such as health education now green transition and i in a recent paper i did some calculations on uh, if you if you for example if you were able to bring the interest payments to revenues from india's current level to an average em you would be re- releasing something like 6 to 8 lakh crores which could be spent on health education and other which is almost like you know if, if you look at pre covid so levels 6 to 8, eight lakh, lakh crores, crores
0: would be like So it is one, two percent of GDP. Yeah,
1: two and a half. So, so, pre COVID levels, I think if you compare it, is as much as the education expenditure, double the health expenditure, which India makes
0: currently. So, just picking on that, so you said cyclical spending by India is almost flat. And that's because they don't have space to spend during bad times. They're always spending very high.
1: Right, right. Um, I think if you look at the variation in debt, as you know, we look at variation in debt. How much is explained by cyclical fluctuations? Okay. It's it's very less in India compared to an average emerging emerging I economy. See.
0: And then, like just building on it, so during the COVID period, I I guess you analyzed it for like all the countries that you are tracking in terms of spending. Like where would India s- stand relative to others? Because I guess most of the developing economies probably had less space to spend during COVID. The governments, I mean.
1: Right I think if you look at uh, fiscal support during covid I think the advanced economies did much more you know it went if especially if you include above the line and below the line below the line are these liquidity measures advanced economies did way more than uh, typical emerging uh, economies
0: and so I just want to trace this history of FRBM so I guess the first law passed in 2003 and because you were on the advisory committee maybe you know like what's the history of it like are we constantly tracking it, and what is it that we do new every time there is a committee talking about this kind of budget responsibility yeah, by I mean, the government? Since
1: so, two thousand uh, original FRBM uh, came into picture, and if you look at the f- fiscal position in India, um, it, it mm-hmm. improved dramatically after uh, the FRBM, and then it was reviewed because I think the global environment has changed, right? I think yes. it's uh, you know I think it's totally different uh, global environment, especially after uh, you know t- twenty thirteen mini taper tantrum crisis. Uh, which which happens especially for emerging economies, including India. So it was time to revisit the framework and think about the the goalposts. I think now, probably with COVID, we are in a totally different environment. And I'm sure there will be rethinking on the framework going forward.
0: So in the latest one that you helped prepare, uh, what's the optimal level of debt they are targeting for India, debt to GDP?
1: So at that time, again, after uh, uh, a lot of Cross-country evidence and using a lot of technical methods, um, the committee came up to a number of about sixty percent of GDP, and um, of course, you know, in the context of COVID, the goalpost will have to be revisited and seen how it fits. fits So now we
0: are at ninety percent.
1: We are we are between eighty to eighty-five, I think. Okay, India is somewhere between eighty to eighty-five, which is still higher compared to emerging market uh, countries. But you're right that post COVID, it 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 went above ninety percent of GDP. Okay, I see. And then came down with you know as GDP growth picked up, inflation was high. You have declined, declining, declining uh, debt to GDP from its peak post COVID levels.
0: So following on this further, and just trying to understand, maybe you can unpack some of these technicalities for us. How do you decide that it should be sixty percent for India?
1: Yeah, uh, I think uh, again uh, there is there are a number of approaches we used. To see how much what what the optimal uh, debt to GDP is, for example, how much you know if if you're put in a stress scenario, how much a country can withstand. But in addition to that, you know what uh, what is the level of debt beyond which some of the non-linearities um, in in terms of the impact on growth set in. So there were a number of methods that were used. I think uh, another method was that look at. Peers and see what their average is. Uh, and that was also a, a key input. Uh, so I think it was uh, as much as I can recall. I think it was a combination of different methods, and again, you know, a lot of uh, consultation externally, internally, to come up come up uh, with um, a sixty percent. And as I said, you know, post COVID, a lot has changed, and that's what the World Economic Outlook chapter looks at. Mm-hmm. Globally, public debt is at unprecedented levels, and how to bring it down is is, is a challenge across the world. And um, you know how fiscal consolidation works, how debt restructuring could complement it. Um, I think uh, you you have to think about it in a holistic way in this post covid environment so any of the goalposts i, ch- I think which countries had in the pre covid era would definitely need to be uh, revisited right, yes. and you know you, you would have to look at additional so, so i think in the in, in the new thinking it's not only debt but i think you know things like governments you know government bond spreads um you know how much government is borrowing at in in relation to a risk free rate uh, so you have to take into account additional indicators as well
0: and The 60% number that you gave was for the center government or for Including
1: states, it, it, it was it was at that point it was 60% center plus state so 40% for the center and 20% for the states and the idea was that you would be able to bring it down or at least bring it in the direction of declining debt tra- trajectory from i think it was above 50% for the center at that point of time and about 25% for the states combined the idea was that both would be uh, in in that tra- trajectory of declining debt to gdp ratios
0: and was there also recommendation on how the state government should do it? Because I guess that was kind of a black box even going five years ago. It's difficult to track what their debt is. So were there any targets for them specifically to achieve and how they are doing?
1: Not state by state. I think it was uh, because I think the framework was overall for the sovereign. And so what matters is in the end, what matters is sovereign debt to GDP. So I think the FRBM committee focused on center and states as combined all together. I think it's, it, it was in the mandate of the Finance Commission to look at particular states and the dynamics between states and you know, look at vertical uh, devolution and horizontal devolution.
0: So since you talked about spread, I guess different states would also have like different paying capacity. And last time I tracked these numbers, each state was paying same interest, rate, roughly same, like there's very small margin, marginal difference between the states. Do you think that should change, that states which are doing well on monitoring the debt, they should be able to borrow cheaply. Was that also something which was discussed?
1: So this, this has been one of the stylized facts of um, borrowing by states. That is, markets don't tend to distinguish across different states, depending on the fiscal discipline across or variation of fiscal discipline across the states. So, so but
0: just to put in context, in the US, it would be different across states.
1: I am not sure. I have not looked at okay. state-level spreads for the U.S. Uh, for India, we did look at it for the uh, FRBM. So I know
0: in the U.S., even the cities borrow, right. and there can be a large variation in terms of what cities pay. Right, right, right. So right. yeah, I'm just guessing it would be the same for states. Right, right,
1: right. And that's correct. And I think um, so. This was one of the big issues discussed in the FRBM and also in the 15th Finance Commission. That is why why is there not variation across states? And I think. Um, There are two reasons. One is I think the liquidity of these markets is not very high. And second, I think the information about these state development loans or SDLs is also not that all pervasive. So if you ask a foreign investor about these state development loans, you know, the knowledge about, you know, the markets, um, the conditions which are needed, the requirements of investing in state is very is very sparse, I would say. So it's a combination of both liquidity and information related factors that would be responsible for very flat uh, borrowing rates across spreads, despite differences in uh, you know a lot of state level variables,
0: including fiscal discipline. And the fifteen finance commission, I guess they also looked at it. And I mean, for outsiders again, it's kind of black box. What does a finance commission really do?
1: Right. Right. So the finance commission, uh, I think, looks into vertical devolution and horizontal devolution so vertical devolution is how much so so if you have a pot of resources how much is allocated between the center and the states and given the allocation overall allocation of the states how do you distribute across different states which is called horizontal devolution so if you think about it uh, you know any the level of development of a state is a, is a function of very complex set of factors. It includes, for example, historical factors, cultural factors, socioeconomic factors. So the idea is that you could give additional resources to a state. However, these additional resources would, you know, it depends on how these additional resources are actually being utilized, whether they are being utilized um, effectively. So what the 15th Finance Commission did was to reward, so, so, to, so to allocate um, horizontally based on need but also based on performance. And the idea for allocating resources across states for performance based on performance was twofold. One was you are uh, you want to incentivize better performance uh, going forward. And the second is you want to reward um, past performance, which, which, which included states which can actually utilize these funds more effectively.
0: So one of the most common thing we only hear about finance commission is that you're going to provide these resources based on the population. So I don't know how heated these debates were in the committee.
1: Right. So so demographic performance is one of the criteria which the Finance Commission uses. So what is demographic? So, so this is one of the performance criteria. So, so whether the, you reward states which perform better based on population control, but more generally on um, health and education indicators.
0: So just to provide context, so the idea is that because UP and Bihar, they have they have like large uh, or sharp population growth historically they would have received more funds and now there would be like some penalty associated with it because they grew so fast. Yeah,
1: because I think I think the the allocation based on demographic performance was about twelve twelve and a half percent. So states which did better on population control, but also as I said, more broadly on health and education indicators, would get you know a little bit more based on uh, you know population
0: performance. So this is a difficult question, right? There is some moral hazard, right? But also there's there would be problem of convergence because. These states are poor to start with and probably they'll get less support. So how do you balance these objectives? Absolutely.
1: I think this is a delicate balancing act which the Finance Commission tries to perform is, you know, balance needs. Because I think you want to allocate resources based on needs. But at the same time, give some weight to performance as well.
0: And the performance was 12.5%.
1: Demographic performance was 12.5%.
0: Okay, I see. So... I'll move to the other part, like you've also spent like a lot of time uh, at the IMF, but also at the RBI. So you have tracked monetary policy, not just in India, but also in other countries. So I'm just quoting from one of your articles with Rajan, you say that all monetary policies have external spillover effects. The bottom line is that simply because a policy is called monetary, unconventional or otherwise, it may not be beneficial on net for the world, that all monetary policies have external spillovers, does not mean that they are all justified. So what spillover are we talking about over here?
1: So indeed, Shekhar, I think spillovers has been a part of my research agenda over the last decade. Um, and if I give you some historical perspective, on May 22nd, 2013, almost a decade ago, the then Fed chairman Ben Bananke indicated that the Fed would start tapering off its asset asset purchases. And of course, um, you know, emerging markets reacted very sharply to Even an indication of, you know, tapering of asset purchases somewhere in the future. I had the opportunity to be a part of of an Indian G20 delegation to to Russia at that point. And emerging markets had made the point that, look, while on the one hand, you know, aggressive monetary easing in the core countries, which included US, Europe and Japan, uh, support recovery in these countries, and in turn, increase the demand for exports from emerging markets. At the same time, there could be other spillovers as well. You know, think about, you know, widening interest differentials, increasing capital flows and exchange rate um, appreciation. And importantly, when you withdraw or anticipate withdrawal of some of these asset purchases, there could be a host of other risks as well. So I think my current research agenda on spillovers have have focused on three things. One is, um, you know, there was a paper which I worked on, you know, a couple of years ago, where we look, looked at how markets differentiate across countries when there's in the case of an any adverse shock in case of a any shock. And and what we found is that countries with better macroeconomic fundamentals, you know, lower current account deficit, lower fiscal deficit, lower inflation and higher GDP growth and deeper financial markets actually react less when um, there is uh, an adverse shock. The second part of the research which I'm actually working on now is to look at monetary policies in the core countries, and U.S. financial conditions in particular, and how and look at spillovers at a very microeconomic level. So we look at basically uh, mergers and acquisitions around the world in response to changes in U.S. financial conditions. So, for example, when U.S. financial conditions get loose, how do mergers and acquisitions behave? And we find that mergers and acquisitions go up. But very interestingly, what we find is that they go up even more if you are a country which is which has a lot of foreign currency-denominated debt. So what is the mechanism here? So basically what happens is when U.S. financial conditions loosen, local currency actually appreciates. So there's a net worth channel and net worth of corporations and countries which have a high degree of FX-denominated debt. That actually goes up. So and this that's is why,
0: both corporate debt or government debt if they own foreign right. in both cases it goes up right. or only corporate. So we
1: debt? I think our primary measure looks which comes from the IMF actually looks at overall. So if you're a country which is overall more indebted in FX. Um right. but I think uh, using I think BIS data we can distinguish across, we don't have very detailed data on particular corporations, but I think mm-hmm. the M&A channel would, would mostly apply. Through corporations, and so, so so if you have if you're a country where corporations um, hold a lot of FX denominated debt, U.S. financial conditions loosen, local currency appreciates, your net worth would go up, and there would be even more mergers and acquisitions. So this is my you know second. Um
0: but this is interesting. Generally, you would think that if you have like too much foreign debt or U.S. dollar denominated debt, you might be negatively impacted more. So on the downside risk is higher. And the upside risk or upside benefit, we don't know. But in this case, you are saying that the upside benefits are much higher, right? So,
1: so basically, and 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 the mechanism is through the exchange rate. So, when U.S. financial conditions loosen or there's a lot of you know liquidity in in the U.S. markets, what happens is the local currency, if an emerging market like India, India, Brazil, that actually appreciates. So, and if you have um, a lot of FX-denominated debt, that debt you know, you get a net net worth boost because uh, your debt in local currency actually goes down. So and that, you know, helps you make even more mergers and acquisitions.
0: And so because you are tracking the world economic outlook. So now the transmission would be on the other side, which is that the Fed is increasing the rate, like what are the risks for the rest of the world because of this kind of spillover now?
1: Right, right. So I think, uh, as I mentioned, I think if, if, if the Fed is increasing rates, or back in 2013 when there was anticipation of uh, tapering of asset purchases, what, you know, basically it means capital outflows. In principle, it means capital outflows from emerging economies to, to the advanced economies. And that, would, that could be, you know, associated with uh, depreciation pressures. And, and, and while on the, on the one hand you can you can think that you know the, this can increase export competitiveness, et cetera. but I think if you have a lot of FX denominated debt, the value of that debt is actually going to go up and that's going to negatively impact. So So this is exactly I think if you go back to 2013, I think uh, what exactly happened during the taper tantrum? But I think importantly, it's important to remember that you know countries with better macroeconomic fundamentals are affected less when there is an adverse shock like this.
0: And is it better than 2013? Because 2013 was like completely unanticipated. And because we lived through it, now everyone knows what to do probably. But is the shock like of similar magnitude or it's less impactful this time? So if I have to make a comparison, 2013 was really unanticipated and people lived through it. So now we have better sense of how to deal with these shocks. So if you have to compare now the Fed increasing the interest rate, how would you compare it relative to 2013?
1: I think the quantum of interest rate increase is unprecedented this time around. So you are right. I think that you know, a, lot, a lot has been priced, priced in by the markets, but there are a lot of unintended consequences for the impact on banks, what the unrealized losses are, and so on and so forth.
0: And does IMF have like a specific position on it that I, I, I know they can't tell the Fed there should be still discussions about it. That there is an optimal way to do it.
1: Yeah, I think there is no optimal. You know, there's nothing optimal, and there's no. Okay. Um, uh, I mean, it, it should be in a. Uh, it should be forward guidance, etc., okay. which is properly given. And but this time around, everything is priced in. Huh? It's in the sense that it, this was what happened to the banks was despite the fact that you know there was no you know there was no shock in the sense right. We knew that there is an uh, you know this much quantum of. Uh, you know, interest rate increase, which is built in.
0: Coming to the Indian context, though, I mean, there's a lot of work now about monetary policy transmission. And I remember you had a paper on it uh, talking about that banks probably don't transmit the changes by the RBI immediately. Uh, What was interesting about it was you were looking at like how banks or even a given bank is transmitting it across different cities. So maybe you can tell us about why it's important and what did you find?
1: So this is um, one strand of re- research where um, we use branch level data, and uh, from the basic statistical re- returns of the Reserve Bank of India, and the idea was that if you look at the literature, it's, it focuses on um, bank. Bank level, as you mentioned yourself, Shekhar, and uh, it looks at external frictions of banks. If you're a bank which is more constrained to go on go to markets to raise funds, etc., you you have bigger transmission of the monetary policy. For example, you know classic work like a Sheppenstein, etc. Here we instead of looking at frictions across banks, external frictions of banks, we look at internal frictions within banks across branches. And you, why is that important? Actually, if you look at variation in credit, um 90% of the variation in credit in India is actually within banks across branches than across, across banks. And this is what actually motivated this so whole thing. Va-
0: like SBI, if I think of just as an example, across SBI branches, there's more variation Correct. than between Correct. SBI and Correct. Let's say correct. Axis bank.
1: Correct, correct, absolutely, absolutely correct. So, so 90% if you do a standard again to get a little bit technical, if you do a standard variance decomposition, 90% of the variation in lending is actually within banks across branches than across banks. So this is what motivated the entire exercise. And basically we did two things. One is we looked at changes in reserve requirements as as a policy tool, which is used fairly commonly across emerging emerging markets. And it's a very direct tool of uh, policy. And number two, we looked at, as I said, within banks and across branches. And one of the key findings was that um, branches um which which have more more friction within so, so greater the friction uh, within branches lesser is the transmission of changes in r- reserve requirements and again to say it in a more um uh, non-technical way suppose uh, you know th- th- there are branches which are which have more expertise branches with more number of officers and those which make sort of less complex you know loan structures um, they actually transmitted faster changes in reserve requirements than compared to other other branches.
0: And if I have to think in terms of geographies, are the metros doing better than non-metros? Like, where is the slowest transmission?
1: Right. I think we looked at rural versus urban in the latest okay. version of the paper. We don't focus. We focus mostly on intra bank organizational frictions. Um, but I think we we did find that rural areas as, uh, tend to transmit less compared to urban areas. Uh, and is
0: it also like state level variation?
1: No, we actually because it's within branch within banks across okay. branches and branches are at a more granular level. We did not look at state level
0: variation. Okay and would there be also like some time trend like at some points of time this gap reduces and then other points it widens right. so
1: we looked at loosening versus tightening and we did find uh, differences in the rate of transmission um you know i think we found it you know greater during loosening times than during tightening so, so loosening
0: would be when rbi is yeah loosening
1: would be you know when you're reducing uh, when when you're reducing reserve requirements um, that's these are times of loosening of
0: policy. and in terms of comparison Are there any similar studies in other parts of the world which also look at like bank-level transmission? Are they similar or India is like very different relative to them? Right.
1: I think there is not much of a trend to look at branch-level data. I think there is some um, in the United States, but mostly focusing on deposits rather than credit.
0: I'll move to like another strand of your work. Your PhD dissertation was mostly on trade. So let me ask you the question, which is your favorite trade model and why? Uh,
1: It's a very good question, Shekhar. I think um, I've my favorite trade model would definitely be uh, models of comparative advantage, like Scholtean, Ricardian, and if you think about it, Paul Samuelson, for example, was asked by one, you know, one of the big mathematicians, "Can you tell me one principle in all social sciences which is true but is non-trivial?" So it's it's true but it's it's not obvious. And actually, Paul Samuelson did not have an answer very quickly on this question. He actually thought about it for many years. And he said the answer is comparative advantage. So maybe for a non-technical audience or non-trade audience, what is comparative advantage? Okay. Let me give you an example. Let's say that there are two countries, India and Brazil, and there are two commodities, sugar and pharma. Let's take sugar. India can produce one unit of sugar with three units of labor. And Brazil can produce one unit of sugar with 10 units of labor. Let's look at pharma. India can produce one unit of pharma with two units of labor. And Brazil can produce one unit of pharma with ten units of labor. So, so it's the relative yeah, so the relative productivity advantage of India is much bigger in pharma than it, it is in sugar, and it is vice versa for Brazil. So the idea, the trick here is the trick to understand here is you might, India has absolute advantage in both these commodities because
0: they only take two hours and three hours, Correct. and Brazil take ten. Correct. Okay.
1: And the trick is to you know you you specialize in commodities where you're more better at or less worse at. So you can still, Brazil and India can still gain from uh, trade and specialization.
0: So in an absolute world, because India is good at everything, you wouldn't trade. It, it, but, but here, the re, the comparative advantage is telling us that they still, still gains.
1: Exactly. And this is what I think a trade economist can convey to a non-trade or a more general audience. And it's uh, it's a very powerful intuition. It, it's simple, but I think it's a, once you understand it, you know, it's very intuitive, but it's very powerful at the same time. Let me give you another example, I think, which we can relate to. I think think about Shah Rukh Khan, right? He's, he's, he's a Bollywood actor, but we also know that uh, he's an econ, he has an econ degree. Let's say for a minute uh, he that he has an econ degree. Okay. Yes, he, 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 he has an econ degree. And you, let's say Shah Rukh Khan was the best economist in the world. But his opportunity cost of doing economics rather than Bollywood is probably crores and crores of rupees, right? So I think um, this is the power of power and intuition of the principle of comparative advantage. That is, uh, you, you, you specialize in commodities where the opportunity cost is the minimum, right? In practice, if you think about it, I think, I mean, you are generally rewarded only for exports. You know, exports are important and, you're, you know, you, you get reward, you get pat on the back. I think trade economists can tell the world that, look, successful exporters are also successful importers and this is where uh, the inter- and this is even more true in in this world of global value you know increased global value chains as well
0: so following it on to the practical side of things so i know you had like a paper looking at indian exports in 2018 and you looked at the entire basket of exports from india so what are the key findings from there
1: um, let me say three things one against common perception india is actually relatively open so india's export to gdp um, is about you know twenty percent, twenty percent or so, and for a large economy like India, it's 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 uh, this is a big number and it's comparable to say Indonesia.
0: So, is it? I guess it's a bit lower now because it's five hundred billion to a three trillion dollar economy.
1: Right. So there did there was slowdown in in exports and there were a number of factors responsible for that. Uh, but let me just you know let me let me here point out that there's a difference shaker between you know merchandise versus overall. So the second finding in this paper was there's been a very there's been a revolution in India's exports. So one is merchandise exports or manufacturing exports themselves have moved away from standard goods like textiles, gems, and jewelry to more you know new age um, electronics, electrical goods. And the other revolution has been from manufacturing towards services. And here, I think um, the other finding from this strand of work was against common perception. India is not insulated from global shocks. So the partner country, a partner country income elasticity is very very high so when there is uh, changes in partner country income india does get affected and finally i think um, let me point out we looked at exchange rates as well and you, this was using firm level data on average exchange rate doesn't seem to have a very statistically significant effect on exports there's very interesting variation across sectors it depends on whether you are sec- when whether you are a sector which is intensive in imported intermediate inputs or not intensive so consider se- sector like textile versus consider sector like pharmaceuticals. So textiles is relatively less imported intermediate input intensive compared to say um, pharma. Pharma is very high imported input intermediate input intensive. So and it, and this matters for uh, the effects of exchange rate. So if if for, for example if uh, the exchange rate depreciates, if you are a sector like pharma your imported intermediates get way more expensive compared to a sector like textiles. So you have less of a kick from depreciation to competitiveness if you are a sector like pharma compared to a sector like textiles. So if you are high domestic value added sector like textiles, you still have standard mechanisms from um, exchange rate to competitiveness working compared to a sector where you're very high foreign value added like. Pharma.
0: So, just to rephrase it, and I'll ask questions on each of these points. So, the third exchange rate point that you mentioned is because the Indian basket has become such that now it has a lot of in- imported inputs, exchange rate depreciation does not help so much in terms of gaining exports.
1: Right. So, there's again, any, at any point in time, there's variation across sectors, but I think okay. you can use it as rightly you did. You can use it to explain variations over time as well.
0: So on average, India has moved to sectors where this help from the exchange rate depreciation is not so high.
1: Correct. To, to the extent that, you know, it is becoming more important in, intermediate input intensive, which is true. Generally, with you know global value chains increasing, you will have um, you will also have a mechanism from changes in exchange rate to cost of intermediate inputs as well, which are imported.
0: I'll go to the first question, though, or the first point that you mentioned about that. On average, our exports are much higher relative to GDP. And you use that metric to say that India is probably not that protected. But that's an outcome variable. Like if you look the same thing on the tariff side, can you say the same? Because maybe it's possible that if the tariffs were reduced further, maybe it wouldn't be 20%, but 25%. So in terms of tariff, where are we like relatively speaking?
1: Right, but ultimately you care about de facto outcomes, right? In the end, what is the outcome, right? Trade openness, I think is measured by export plus imports by GDP, rather than, you know, de jure or or policy. So to me, I think an indicator is trade to GDP, which is a standard measure of openness and there India appears relatively open uh,
0: compared to peers. So this paper was written in 2018. I guess a lot has changed since the COVID uh, pandemic. So maybe if you can talk about, I know you might not be working on it right now, but uh, what are the general trends in the world and maybe even for India after COVID in terms of exports and imports?
1: So I've, I've been looking at, um, you know, more globally what's happening to trade um, after COVID. And one, one, one stylized fact is that, you know, trade has shown remarkable resilience in the aftermath of COVID. So, you know, there was a collapse in trade, but very quick recovery. So first we thought that it's all driven by income. Actually, when we look at trade to income as well, there, there is a very sh- steep slowdown, but very sharp, sharp recovery as well. So trade is pretty much trade, even trade to income is back to pre, pre-pandemic levels. And we are trying to disentangle it and look at it, whether, it, it was, it, it, whether it's uh, quantity, whether it's price. So it looks like it's, it's, it looks as if, for example, if you look at the United States, it looks as if trade quantities have recovered to pre-COVID levels, but prices have shot up even more. And domestic prices, in fact, have shot up even more. And we are trying to understand some of you know, what is driving some of these dynamics.
0: And if I may build on this further, like uh, there are a lot of free trade agreements that India is trying to negotiate right now. And given that GVCs are also the flavor of the town these days, like how do these two things tie together, the kind of FTAs we are seeing, the negotiations about them and the role of GVCs, are the FTAs really coming up because of the GVC nature of trade now?
1: So I have not looked at it more analytically um, as yet. Um, but I think uh, there is this tension between you know, regionalism versus multilateralism and there's work done um, by one of my thesis so- supervisors actually, um, Jagdish Bhagwati said that this is these, uh, these bilateral trade agreements are like um, a spaghetti bowl. So I think ultimately we have to uh, keep in mind um, the multilateral perspective. And um, I think uh, at the margin, of course, uh, free trade agreements can boost trade, but remember that there can also be, there's there's a literature which shows that there's trade creation, but there's also trade trade diversion from from these um, trade agreements. So we have to keep the multilateral perspective
0: in mind. So last question. You have been struggling between India and US and you've worked at like so many institutes. Which one is your favorite? You don't have to answer it, but if you have to give a pecking order.
1: I'm not sure if I can give a pecking order, but I think, it's been, you know, I've been very privileged to have worked in a number of large institutions. And uh, each one of them has been a fascinating and a tremendous experience. Um, and I love my current job at the IMF.
0: So uh, because you worked at the RBI for a while, if you can give us like some insights, like how did you find working at the Reserve Bank of India?
1: It was really a fantastic experience. I think it's, um, it's, an, it's an amazing organization with extremely high quality, very talented staff. So I feel very privileged to have been associated with the, with the Reserve Bank of India. And um, it has really widened my perspective, policy and also research and the intersection between the two.
0: And then you also worked at Goldman. So that's like completely different space. I guess the speed of working is like very different. How did you find that?
1: It's a different job and it's a different audience. So you have to uh, make yourself flexible and adaptable to use your skill. The skills are ultimately the same. Right. I'm an economist by training and I, am, I work at the intersection of policy and research. So the skills are the same. It's just that um, the, 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 cl- the, the audience is different and the style is different. So it's very, you know, mostly, you know, communication is also different. So the packaging is different. The communication is different. But ultimately, the skills are the same. You're an economist. And I think you have to strive every day to innovate, bring new, you know, bring new perspectives. To the questions at hand, and this is the policy. Basically, this is you know this has been my philosophy to you know work on questions which are important and which are central to both global economic policy as well as to society, and then you use the best tools available to address that question.
0: So the underlying questions remain similar, but then you work at different organizations, and that, that's how it works.
1: Right, and you have to be adaptable and flexible to uh, be able to cater to the audience and to the da- demands of the organization.
0: Wonderful. It was great talking to you. Bradley. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you very you so much. much Shaker. It was a
1: pleasure.